0: Hark, Mark. Is that the sound of sleigh bells? That rhymes, <laughs> and you know it rhymes. you are a poet, and you know it. Goodness me, yeah, anyone would think that this was a, a podcast about singer-songwriters the and their, their sort of background. Okay, um, well, on that note, uh, hopefully we can improve from that. <laughs> Don't bet on it. Hello, and welcome to Bob Dylan, American Shakespeare, brought to you in conjunction with Crystal Pier Records by me, Rich Evans, And me, Mark Walsh. This is the podcast where we revisit each of Bob Dylan's officially
1: released albums. We take a couple of weeks to listen back to each of them in turn. And then we get together to have a good old discussion. We do usually go in release order. But as it's Christmas, we are breaking our own rules and getting all seasonal. Mostly by talking about Christmas in the Heart, which came out in October 2009. So, Rich, um, we usually kick off by uh,
0: looking back and going down memory lane. So, um, what's your backstory with Christmas I'm a sucker for Christmas I have to admit I mean to the extent that you know those horrendous kind of movies that get shown on Channel 5 at this time of year the sort where you've got I don't know like a a couple of competing real estate agents who um, one female one male who uh, who are trying to sell the same house and then by the end of it they realize due to some Christmas miracle that they uh, they've fallen in love that's my kind of film really so uh, yeah anything anything Christmassy I will go for, absolutely. I really like this album. I think that it's probably been knocked unfairly, but it it ties in with with so many of the things that I love about Christmas. I spent quite a lot of Christmases over in the States, and I think that they're kind of that sort of strange 1950s vision or version of Christmas, really. Um, It sort of shines through this, and I guess that's kind of because Bob Dylan grew up in that era, really, I'm I'm pretty much as I say a sucker for any any kind of Christmas music but so so this this fits right into that. What about you Mark?
1: I was just thinking I might have seen that film you mentioned the other day. <laughs> um,
0: it's a classic yeah, <laughs>
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm a sucker for Christmas as well. Um, I love the whole thing. Christmas carols, all the traditional stuff. I I don't have any kind of relationship with the American Christmas like you do. And I guess we're going to be talking about that a bit later in the show, because I think you're absolutely right. I think one of the big things about this record that you can start to, to dig into is how it relates to kind of Bob Dylan's childhood and this kind of representation of an America that perhaps never really existed. But that's a little bit heavy for the intro, isn't it? Um, So um, why don't we kick off with a little bit of the background on this record?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, this was released in 2009. It was his 34th studio album. I missed it entirely when it was released. We had a new baby in the house. And so I pretty much missed anything uh, in in that particular year. Seem to remember being sleep deprived the whole time. So, yeah, this totally passed me by. So I was was (laughs) discovering this anew, really. But I mean, I think that the key thing about this is that it was a charity record and all of the royalties from the sale of the album went to the Feeding America program. And, and of course, Dylan himself was very vocal about the fact that 35 million people in the country often go hungry and so this is an initiative to kind of raise some money for that and so with that in mind I mean it's it's very difficult to knock it it's not only is it a nice pleasant Christmas album but also it's doing it's doing very very good things and uh, being having money donated to good causes so it opened at number one on the billboard charts and I mean I think it's fair to say Mark isn't it that it had mixed uh, reactions
1: yeah, very much so. And I suppose what you've just mentioned is, is part of the oddity of this album, isn't it? Because on the one hand, Bob Dylan putting out a Christmas record seems like su- such a strange thing to do, such a, an obvious target for people to just shoot at. But the fact that it was a, a charity record means that it, it really would be very Scrooge-like to be doing such a thing. And I, th- I think most people didn't at the time and certainly haven't in retrospect either. So it was, it was considered a very worthy endeavour, which it was. And it is a pleasant listen, I think. And that, that was picked out by a lot of the reviewers at the time. I, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, Rich, but one of the things that I find really enjoyable about the album is just the arrangements are so perfect for all these songs. I, I don't think there's anything revolutionary about them. That they're, they're, they're very much played straight. But you've got a band that really knows how to do this stuff. and You know, I think this goes back to the way in which Dylan, the musician, was evolving at this time. Um, I mean, obviously, we're we're out of sync here in our usual run of of episodes, so we'll be coming back to this in due course, probably in another couple of Christmases when we get to records like Modern Times and Together Through Life. But I mean, even from Love and Theft, he'd he'd started, hadn't he, with these arrangements that are very much pre-rock and roll. I don't really know exactly how to define, but it's that kind of late-night lounge feel with a lot of the arrangements that starts on Love and Theft* and builds through those later records. And the band are used to playing it. Dylan's used to performing that kind of music. And it absolutely works on this record, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it's, it's that 1950s sort of feel, isn't it? and I mean there's there's an aspect of kind of Sinatra kind of era on this but yeah I totally agree I mean the the musicianship is wonderful on this the arrangements are I mean they're quite subtle but I mean they're very very well played absolutely suitable and I mean yeah going back to the the kind of mixed reaction I think yes it's very very listenable and so that In in many respects, is due to the band, but of course the the mixed reaction. This was never going to be another Highway 61. I mean, it's an album of Christmas songs, isn't it? So it's never going (laughs) to never going to push the boundaries of uh, of of, of kind of musicality or or or, or lyrics or anything like that because they're they're covers at the end of the day. But no, I I totally agree with that, and I think it's it's really key that the. He's so well supported by, by this band. I mean, it's it's just it fits right into that kind of, I suppose, Christmas music music genre, if there is such a thing. It, it can all of the arrangements on this can sit side by side with pretty much any of the Christmas classics and, and it ticks all the right boxes really.
1: Yeah, and that leads on quite nicely to the big criticism that that has been made of the record, which is that you've got these really lovely arrangements. It's a well curated list as well, actually, isn't it? I mean, you know, you you can't complain with any of the song choices on there. But then you've got this (laughs) fin Dylan voice (laughs) just (laughs) growling its way through them. And it's a funny thing, isn't it? I I think when when this record came out, you know, we, we were used to Bob Dylan's voice being completely shot. And I think most of us just thought, well, that's what it is now, you know. I mean, how old was he then? He's already 70, I guess, or, or close to it. And we thought, this is it. But, I mean, quite astonishingly, over the last 10 years, it seems to have come back, doesn't it? To the point where we've been blessed with Shadow Kingdom this year, uh, where his voice just sounds astonishing again. But but we are a long way from that here. And I think there's a couple of things, isn't there? There's, there's places where his voice is just off. I mean, we're not, we're not unused to that on Dylan Records, I guess. But there's also just places where you wonder, well, is it actually even appropriate for somebody with a voice like that to be singing these songs?
0: Yeah, it's it's difficult, isn't it? Because when you look at this in the context of kind of the American songbook and the covering of all of those standards, I think it, it, it makes much more sense. It seems much more appropriate. Whereas I think in 2009, when this landed, I think there was a little bit of, has he, has he maybe overstepped the mark slightly by trying to do this? And I think there's, there's two things that I think in response to that. I mean, the first one is that over the years, I've come to realise that I, I very rarely don't like Bob Dylan's uh, music. I sometimes don't like his performances. But what I've realised, I think, is that I don't like his performances on the very few occasions that I don't anyway, when I feel like he's not trying. And I feel like he's not fully committed. And I basically feel like he can't be asked. And, um, and I think that, I, I well, my belief is that he is fully committed on these. He's really trying. And so as a result, I'm quite okay with that. Um, I mean, I think he's selling these ideas of the songs. And also, I think the other, the other thing about Christmas music is it's very easy to make it too schmaltzy. And I mean, I don't think the the arrangements could, in in places, sound quite schmaltzy on this. But you stick his singing over the top of it, and it's something very, very different. And I mean, I'll I'll go slightly off piece here, and I'll talk about my favorite all time favorite Christmas song, which is "Fairy Tale of New York" by the Pogues. Relevant because, uh, of course, they they did support Bob Dylan back in the mid '80s on a couple of tours of, of, of the states. But I mean, Shane McGowan. Let's face it. He he was not a singer, um, in the strictest sense of the word. He's certainly not someone that you would put up there with the uh, having an angelic voice, shall we say? But I think it's absolutely appropriate for that kind of bittersweet treatment that he gives to Fairy Tale of New York. I mean, I think that essays upon essays could be written about the chorus line of that. The boys of the NYPD choir are singing Galway Bay, uh, because I just think it summons up such a wealth of images. It does everything that a great song should do. But he is so suitable for that song because he he gives it the kind of tenderness and the sweetness, but then the actual sound of his singing totally kind of undermines that. And I think Bob Dylan does something similar with these. There's a, a, not a hint of menace, but there's a slight, hint because of his performances that you know christmas might not always be the schmaltzy kind of 1950s polar express kind of sanitized version that we might always like it to be or indeed the channel five version yeah that's that's a really yeah uh, a really good way of looking at it and
1: and now i think about it my favorite christmas song uh, a little less credible than yours is probably <laughs> driving home to christmas and, um, You've also got quite a gravelly voiced fellow uh, singing that. So perhaps that's the way forward. Uh, more Christmas songs sung by people who are reminiscent of Tom Waits. Um, but yeah, no, you're right. I mean, it does work, doesn't it? It works really, really well on stuff like I'll Be Home for Christmas and Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas as well, which, which I think is, is superb. I, 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 think, I think it just works a bit less well on the more traditional songs. And when I, when I say a little bit less well, I mean... I think it's flat out awful.
0: Yeah, it, it's, <laughs> I, I, I agree. It's, it's very, very difficult to, to defend some of those more traditional songs. So things like, Oh Come will Ye Faithful and the, the kind of traditional stuff, I totally agree. It, it, it doesn't quite cut it.
1: Yeah, no. I, well, let's put it this way. Um, my family are very used to um, leaving the table after dinner and sort of sticking their head back into the kitchen 20 minutes later while I'm doing the dishes and hearing Bob Dylan Blasting out of the speakers, and, and they've they, they've got used to all all kinds of uh, sorts on their their ears as a result. But you know they're kind of they're kind of immune to it now. But uh, my daughter did come in, in the middle of Herald Angels, and her reaction was was not positive. I'll, 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 I'll leave it at
0: that. <laughs> no, I I can I can believe that. I mean that's that's where it becomes a little. You have to have a little bit more commitment, I think, as a listener to really <laughs> uh, to really be okay with that. I mean. I'm just if if I may, I'm just going to kind of segue into. I mean, obviously, this podcast is called Bob Dylan American Shakespeare. We strive to make links with uh, Shakespeare, the immortal bard. It's actually rather difficult in this instance. I mean, Christmas, as we know it, wasn't really invented uh, in any way, shape, or form in in Shakespeare's era. The arguably, the Twelfth Night was was kind of a Christmas play but there's only three actual explicit mentions of Christmas in the entire Shakespearean canon. Potentially I suppose The Winter's Tale might be the most suitable candidate for classing as a sort of Christmas play. It's a little bit of a hard sell to be honest with you. There are mentions though in Hamlet of kind of telling ghost stories on the battlements of the castle in that play and, and I mean I think this was actually kind of a Shakespearean tradition. And if we take the sort of Victorian era as, and, and the sort of Dickensian vision of Christmas with the Christmas Carol as being the kind of, I suppose, the, the, what kick-started our modern sort of version of what Christmas is, if you take the Christmas Carol, the way in which effectively you've got Scrooge being visited by three ghosts, I suppose it sort of ties in with this sort of ghost-telling sort of Christmas tradition but i'm very very aware of the fact that this is more than a little bit tenuous i think that the only thing that i would say in twelfth night uh, sorry not in twelfth night in hamlet you've got this description of a very kind of highly spiritual atmosphere and and this idea of a hallowed time i mean really easter was the biggie uh, back then rather than christmas but this kind of hallowed time in which everything evil is refused admission and this idea of everything evil being refused admission if we think about the fact that this is a charity record if we think about the fact that this is all done in very high spirits then i think that bob dylan we can make a brief link with shakespeare that he's refusing evil admission in this case but that's about the best i can do this time around mate yeah well i mean anyone
1: who who thinks that Evils being banished here hasn't heard the, uh, the the chorus to herald Angels, I would say <laughs> but no no I, I think I think you're right i mean these are these are very tenuous links to Shakespeare's time, but I think there is something there about the um, the invention of the modern christmas and and you're right the, in the sort of Christian tradition Easter was and still is the the, the larger and much more important festival but Christmas has being i suppose colonized by secular culture in a way that Easter hasn 't really not to anything like the same extent, and I guess actually you could call it a recolonization couldn 't you because Christmas itself draws so many elements from a kind of pre Christian traditions but yeah, I think you the, the, the sort of the sort of invention of Christmas in the victorian period is is well is the subject of academic study now isn 't it, but I guess you 've also got this American invention of Christmas in the 20th century. And these songs are, are a core part of that, I think. So, you know, I mean, we, we, all the classic Christmas films that we, we talk about, the American films, uh, the musicals, the the the, the images of uh, those American cities like New York and Chicago in, in the wintertime for Christmas decorations, all this sort of stuff starts building, doesn't it, in the, I guess, the 30s, 40s, 50s, A lot of this stuff comes out of the Second World War, doesn't it? And that juxtaposition of people being away from home at Christmas. And I think probably Dylan's generation, the boomer generation, the first generation that grow up with all that stuff as a core part of their childhood. And I think that's what Dylan's revisiting here, isn't it?
0: I think you're absolutely right, yeah. I mean, I think there's there's a, a warmth here, which... I mean, it might well be an imagined warmth, but it certainly kind of shines through everything. And I mean, if you look at a film like It's a Wonderful Life, for example, that sort of ticks all of the boxes. I mean, it was made immediately post-war. It ticks all of the boxes for all of those Christmas films. And you're right. I mean, there's something absolutely iconic about American movies about Christmas time. I think, I mean, a lot of it was probably a reaction, certainly in, in cinemas, to the Second World War and the fact that, there was this sort of re-establishment of peace, etc. I think as well, you've got to remember the idea of the Cold War and this kind of uh, quite covert kind of propaganda that happened, the idea of America being set against what was perceived as the kind of atheistic Soviet Union, and this idea of, you know, we're going to have this nice, I suppose, Christian Christmas kind of spirit. And of course, tied in with that is also this idea of, commercialism and the idea of capitalism versus this uh, communist sort of enemy etc etc and so it, it's subtle but all of those films kind of feed into this idea of sort of consumer culture the family unit and i think that a lot of those songs that that are kind of standards are really products of that kind of immediately post-war kind of environment and i mean bob dylan would absolutely have been also a product of this kind of this era, and so I think I think that that kind of shines through on pretty much all of the songs in this, really. Yeah, I'd never
1: thought of that before. I mean, that that link between the um Christianity in opposition to the supposed atheism of the enemy and the commercial strand as well that's it's really interesting. And it one of the things that struck me listening to this record was this the first track is. Here Comes Santa Claus, isn't it? Which is just, it's a tremendous version of a great song. Yeah. But I had to go back and listen to the original. Is it Gene Autry? I can't remember. Um,
0: I, I believe it, so. As in Gene Autry, the singing cowboy, I think they used to call yeah, it. yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. But I, but I was just, I was just floored. I mean, I know this is a very familiar song, but I guess I hadn't listened to it perhaps as, as, as intensively as I, i did for this this podcast but this kind of merry children's ditty about santa claus arriving and you know treating the poor kids the same as the rich kids and everyone's very happy to be getting their their presence and then all of a sudden follow the lord of light
0: it's bizarre isn't it
1: but at, it's bizarre and then, but actually it marries those two things exactly doesn't it and so in that way it's a very opposite start to this record
0: yeah i think so i mean it's it's and it's it's nice and high energy as well, isn't it, aside from anything else. I mean, this is uh, it really Gs up the audience for kind of what follows, I suppose. I mean, there's 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 a number of I, I think really, really strong performances on this, but I think that, that one's that one's up there with the best of them, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And even the the songs that uh, I think work less well that we've discussed
1: already. So certainly Pop Herald Angels come on all you faithful. When I was listening to them, after I'd got past the initial shock of being reacquainted with how awful they are the thing that that sparked in my mind was the leonard cohen line about the drunk in the midnight choir <laughs> and i was i was really pleased with that but then i read a, a a review of this album that was put out a couple of days ago actually it was by tom taylor in far out magazine and he he made exactly the same observation so as usual, if there's an original thought out there, I could certainly use it. But uh, Tom Taylor goes on from that to say, well, actually, maybe this is Dylan reaching to be free in the same way as the, uh, the drunk in that song. And I think that, that's quite interesting because one of the, I suppose, the stock responses to Dylan when he does something weird, like putting out a Christmas album when no one really expected him to, is to go back to this idea that he's been saddled with his iconic status, that he's saddled with being the voice of his generation, and that everything he, he's been doing since about 1964 is a reaction to that, trying to get people off his back. But I, I think that kind of analysis isn't isn't quite right um, when we think about this album. Some of the reviews at the time and subsequently see this album in that tradition. This idea of oh, you know, what will really annoy my fan base? I know I'll I'll put out a Christmas album, and I, I don't think that works this time because the songs are played so straight. And because as you say, there's there's so much evident heart in a lot of the performances, but also I don't think it works just because of where Bob Dylan was in his career at this point. So I I do think if you put this album out in 1969 or 79 or even 89, you know, that that might've been uh, a part of it. You would have had this, this astonished reaction that somebody like Bob Dylan was doing this. But I think by 2009, he'd entered a, a kind of a new phase of his, his his career and his position in the kind of public imagination, which I think he still occupies now. I'm not quite sure when it happened, but I think it was sometime between Time Out of Mind and Love and Theft. And we'll, we'll talk about this, I'm sure, when we get to those records, probably in about two years' time. But I think when Time Out of Mind came out, it was still, the, the reaction to it was still in, in the tradition of, the return to form that you know this is this is Bob Dylan he's been rubbish for ages now he's really good again let's see what he does next but by 2009 I think it had changed a bit I think his position as this kind of godfather of the cultural scene and this permanent presence that's going to be venerated throughout American culture popular music culture had become fixed and it was almost like it doesn't really matter what he does anymore he's just Bob Dylan and he's he's omnipresent and we can't be shocked by anything he does. He'd already done, I think, a year or two beforehand that uh, Victoria's Secret commercial, hadn't he? And, you know, people had not batted an eyelid at that. I think the reaction to this also was far less kind of vitriolic than it would have been in previous decades. So, uh, yeah, I, I feel like this is a sort of, this is sort of a symbol of, of him being in a very, very different place in his, in his position in the culture than he had been in previous decades. I don't know how much of that makes sense, Rich.
0: Well, no, I think there's a lot of that that does make absolute sense. I mean, you're right. Had he released this in the '60s, le- let's not forget that, of course, the Beatles were forever putting out Christmas records, but no one batted an eyelid then. But had Bob Dylan done it in the '60s, I absolutely think that people there'd have be been outcry. I think by 2009, you're right. The, I mean, the internet was a thing then, obviously very well established, and I think that kind of spread the amount of avenues that people would discover stuff whereas when you just had print media and tv and stuff like that I think that people were able to monitor what Bob Dylan did a lot closer but the other thing is I mean you be the voice of a generation that's great but I mean you can't be a voice for a generation for decade upon decade upon decade I don't think I mean that's taking nothing away from Bob Dylan but the the people who, for whom he was a voice in the genera- uh, of a generation in the 1960s and who were going on anti-Vietnam marches and things like that. I mean, by 2009, a lot of those guys would have been retired and, I don't know, golfing in Florida or whatever it may be. I know that's a, a horrendous kind of generalisation, but what the voice of a generation means when you are 18 or 20 five years old or whatever it may be is something entirely different to what it is when you're in your mid-60s for example and so I think that that's one of the reasons as well people mellow when they get older as we all know and I think that as an artist he has to change I mean you can't be the angry young man forever I don't think it's kind of like when screen heartthrobs get older and can no longer be screen heartthrobs and they I don't know, they become character actors or they go into rep theatre or whatever it may be. But you, you change, don't you? And, and I think that's, that's one of the reasons why this wasn't met with that kind of mad reaction, that sort of really overblown reaction of what Bob Dylan's doing Christmas songs. I think that it's just a thing about time and age, really, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I think a couple of things about that. So one is that I think this kind of um, trope of of Bob Dylan fans being outraged and betrayed is something that is perpetrated by the media. I think you're right. I don't think there were a lot of 70 year olds on golf courses getting very upset that Bob Dylan had put out a Christmas record. But I think the other side of it is, is something that was covered on the, the latest, is it rolling Bob podcast, which as we mentioned before, we, we, we both adore and uh, if anybody listening to this by any chance hasn't heard that please do go and listen to it as a, as a matter of urgency but on the latest one at the time of our recording this they had Andy Miller on and, and he he talks at length about his um his anger at the way in which Bob Dylan is seen as kind of a cuddly figure now that's loved only by old white guys and, and he, he talks quite movingly actually about the way in which he discovered Dylan's 60s music as a teenager. And that's the thing, isn't it? I think it's 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 that experience that so many of us have had of all different ages of encountering that music from the 60s and finding that it speaks to us at that time in our lives. And I think there's probably a process for everybody where they realize at some point that Bob Dylan has his own life. (laughs) (laughs) And we we you know he isn't that person forever. And what he does now isn't what he was doing then. And it's almost like every new listener has to come to terms with the fact that, you know, he changes. He changes all the time. I suppose, you know, that old cliche about growth being painful. It's almost like that in your kind of personal relationship with Bob Dylan. You have to come to terms with it somehow. And I guess for me, by the time this record came out, I had. Um, so I wasn't outraged but I can well imagine this had come out in 99 I, I would have been quite annoyed that he was doing this sort of thing
0: yeah I think I, I would probably share that because I think if, if it came out in 99 I think I would I was still quite idealistic I think about well, you know Bob Dylan remained true to the cause or whatever it may be however ridiculous as that sounds but <laughs> I think that it's that thing and and again to make a link with Shakespeare here that you have to separate the body of work from the person and that's the sort of key here because of course depending on where you arrive in the Dillon canon or the Shakespeare canon it will mean different things to you and of course the meanings aren't static they're not fixed they change all the time and so someone may have listened to this Christmas album as a child and thought it was very jolly for example and then may have got into the Bob Dylan back catalogue in that kind of way it's going to mean entirely different things and I think the idea that anyone would be offended by it I think is is absolutely as you say that's a, a complete case of the media overplaying this really and suggesting that people people would be outraged by this idea of, of someone as iconic as Bob Dylan putting out a Christmas album. Because at the end of the day, it's separating the body of work from the idea that he's thinking, oh, I know this is going to really screw people up. It's going to mess with their minds. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. Although, I, I, this is the third time I've mentioned it
1: now, but I I, I am quite disturbed by Arc Behold, Angel Sing." So if that was his his intention, you hit the nail on the head. There. But yeah, that, you're right, though, Rich. And I, I mean, that's the case for for my kids for sure because we've all enjoyed a, a lot of this record for for a long time now. Um, and and for them, it'll be among the the, the first popular songs that they've heard. Um, and just just touching on that, the the video to uh, must be Santa it is absolutely one of the highlights yeah. of my Christmas every year. It's just an absolutely marvelous piece of work.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, do you know, I mean, I really love that song. I, I love I'll Be Home for Christmas. I mean, it's outstanding. It's so sad, obviously. Winter Wonderland with its great jazz kind of shuffle. I think anything that's, that's sort of 1950s style works really brilliantly on this. I think, as we've said, steer clear, really, of some of the traditional stuff because it just doesn't work as well. But I mean, I'd I'd give this album a, a pretty resounding endorsement I think and I've I've enjoyed kind of discovering it absolutely.
1: Yeah, I mean wh- wh- where would you you put this Rich? I mean it's it's almost a ridiculous question but in in kind of the canon of Christmas music. Do, do you think it sits in there as a as something that you you will go back to or you do go back to regularly?
0: I do. I mean I will be honest my favourite Christmas album is the Phil Spector one, uh, The "The Christmas Gift to You which is really really consistent, it's got that amazing wall of sound right the way through it and it's featured, I think one of the things is that's because of the age of that record, it's featured on so many great movies as well and it's forever being played, uh, played on the radio. I think that when this bob dylan one came out i don't think it was played well i mean maybe it was just that i wasn't listening to the radio that much but i don't think it's kind of seeped into the popular culture quite as much but i mean the phil spector album something i put on in the day in the morning kind of thing i think this bob dylan one is much more of a late night album but it's no less impressive for that
1: i think that just about sums it up perfectly rich totally agree and on that note, maybe wish you all a very Merry Christmas and see you in the new year when we'll be back to our usual routine with Planet Waves.
0: Yeah, and that's Merry Christmas from me as well. And thank you, as always, for tuning in. Any questions, any suggestions that you have, we'll be delighted to hear them. You can find us on Twitter, search at Dylan American.